Hello again, Ars Technica listeners. This is the third installment of a three-part interview with UC Irvine quantitative psychologist Don Hoffman and his wildly original and mind-boggling take on the nature of reality. If you haven't yet heard parts one or two, there are links on the page where this player is embedded, and I strongly suggest you go back and listen to them before listening to this installment. And with that, back to my conversation with Don Hoffman. We'll try to solve the mind-body problem in the other direction. Instead of starting with the physical world that's not conscious and trying to figure out how we can boot up consciousness from unconscious ingredients, maybe we can start with the mathematical theory of consciousness and then show how we could boot up space-time and physical objects as just an interface that conscious agents use to interact with each other. Is it accurate to say that you currently believe with high confidence that space-time is a user interface and that what we perceive has very, very little connection, if any, to objective reality. That's something you're highly confident in, whereas the notion of the social network of conscious agents, that's a theory that you're working on right now. I think the right scientific attitude toward any scientific theory is not one of belief. It's a matter of understanding, so it's up to a scientist to really understand a theory, to understand its implications, to understand its mathematics, and then to follow its predictions, test the predictions, and try to break the theory. Good scientists try to take theories and push them to their limits, and when they break, we are quite happy because we're about to learn something new. So evolution by natural selection entails that none of our perceptions are veridical, and that entails that space and time is just a construct. So now the next step that I've taken, which is to say, well, maybe objective reality is not space-time, maybe it's this vast social network of conscious agents, that's a big step. It's a big leap, and it'll be up to me to try to make it completely mathematically precise and make new predictions. So I propose it not because I'm sure I'm right. I'm trying to be precise and bold so that others can show me where I'm wrong. And that's how science works, is we make bold and mathematically precise proposals, look at the implications, see where they go wrong, and then see how we have to change the mathematics. And that's when we start to make real progress. One of the things that has popped out of the math and the work that you've done thus far is the notion that lower-level consciousnesses can combine into higher-level consciousnesses. Two independent consciousnesses could create a greater one. And one thing that might appear to support that is these split-brain surgeries that were much more common back, I think, in the 50s and 60s. And you actually met one of the people who did a lot of those surgeries. Yes, I had the pleasure of getting to know and become friends with Joe Bogan, who was a surgeon who did a number of these surgeries. Dozens of them, right? Not just one or two, but oh, yeah, many do dozens. That's right, dozens. That's yeah. Right. The problem was epilepsy that could not be treated with the drugs that they had at the time. And in some cases, it made the life of the patients just unbearable. If you have a seizure every hour and you can't drive, you can't do anything, you could fall down and knock yourself out, it's nasty. And so in desperation, they tried something. There's a part of the brain that has bad electrical activity. It's called an epileptic focus. Maybe it's over in your left hemisphere somewhere. And once that focus starts sending off you know, random electrical activity in the brain, it spreads like a storm. And you get this cortical storm that goes from the left hemisphere across something called the corpus callosum. It's a band of fibers that connects the left hemisphere of the brain to the right hemisphere of the brain. And then the right hemisphere of the brain gets swept up in the storm and the whole brain goes down this surgery was radical and desperate, but the idea was if there's an epileptic focus, say, in the left hemisphere, 
if we cut the corpus callosum, this band of fibers that connects the right and left hemisphere, maybe only the left hemisphere will go down. It will go down with epilepsy, but the right hemisphere will stay alert, and so the person can stay awake, and they can take care of themselves. They won't fall down. And so it was desperate, but they decided to go for it. And it worked, right? It was a clinical success. It was spectacular. The number of epileptic seizures dropped dramatically, and the lives of these people was dramatically changed. And most of the family members said, I can't see anything different about the person. Now that they've had their brain cut in half, they seem pretty normal, except now they don't have as many seizures. But the odd thing is, there is now a left half and right half of the brain that have no communication between them. You used a great description in your writing. You said it's almost as if we've had this terrible outbreak of computer viruses and malware, and we've decided to cut the fiber optic cable between Europe and the United States to stop it. But lo and behold, it was working. And so Joe Bogan was one of two surgeons who carried out a lot of these procedures. And you met him in a very interesting circumstance. What was the name of the society you were part of? It was called the Helmholtz Club. It was a secret group of about a dozen to 18 scientists that met here at UC Irvine over in the university club. This sounds like the beginning of a great horror movie, a secret group of brain scientists, but it would probably be in a more menacing town than Irvine, but continue. The meetings were clandestine, not because we were doing something nefarious, but because Francis Crick was a member of the group. And Francis was so famous that if anybody knew he was on campus, we wouldn't get any work done. Francis Crick being one of the two people who discovered the double helix DNA molecule. And he was brilliant, and he had demystified life, right? Before Crick and Watson made their discovery, vitalism was a belief that maybe living things were different from non-living things because they had some elan vital, some mysterious special force that kept them alive. And so Crick was really after doing the same thing for consciousness that he'd done for life. He wanted to demystify it. And the Helmholtz Club, we were meeting to pursue that idea. How exactly does brain activity create conscious experiences? And we went at it for a couple decades. So this puzzle that we were talking about earlier, the this is problem. something you've been hammering on since the 80s and the 90s. That's right. In, from the mid-80s all the way up until 2004 when Francis died. And then Bogan, who had done all this seminal work with the split brain surgery, he was a regular member, right? That's right. He came and gave a talk and then became a regular member. And so tell us about some of the crazy things that started to manifest from these people who had had these seemingly very successful surgeries. Who was it that got them into the lab? Sperry? Roger Sperry. Yeah. And he won the Nobel Prize for the work that we're about to talk about. So Bogan didn't get it for chopping the brains in half. Sperry got it for coming in and figuring out there's this eerie thing afoot. That's right, for figuring out what was going on to come up with a psychological explanation for it. And so I can give you a kind of experiment that Sperry would do. I'll update it with the technology. Suppose I put you in front of a computer screen and I put a little X in the middle of the screen and you look at the X. And then while you're looking at the X, I flash up for a tenth of a second a phrase like key ring. I make sure that the word key appears just to the left of the X that you're looking at, and the word ring appears just to the right of the X that you're looking at. So it flashes up there for a tenth of a second, then disappears, and I ask you, what did you see? Now, if you're a normal person without a split brain operation, it's easy. Tenth of a second is plenty of time. You'd get it right 100% of the time. But if you ask a split brain patient, they will say, I saw the word ring. They will not say key ring because they only saw ring with their right eye, which reports to the left side of the brain. It's not quite the eyes. The word ring appeared to the right of where they were looking in the right visual field. The right eye and the left eye both see the right visual field. But the right visual field gets mapped 
by the weird wiring of the brain, from the eye to the brain, it only goes to the left hemisphere. Regardless of which eye it comes into. Exactly right. The Regard- right visual field goes into the left hemisphere. Exactly yep. right. That's strange, but that's the way it's wired. And then the left visual field goes directly to the right hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Now, in normal people, you have a corpus callosum, which then sends the information across, right? The right hemisphere sends its information to the left hemisphere, the left hemisphere sends it to the right. One and half so says, you... I got key, the other half says, I got ring, exactly. and then they say, together we got key ring. Exactly right. You put it together and you get key ring. Yeah. But with the split brain patient, that liaison between the hemispheres is gone. And so the right hemisphere sees the word key, the left hemisphere sees the word ring, and nobody saw key ring. Mm-hmm. And only the left hemisphere talks. Mm. The right hemisphere can understand language, but it can't talk. Mm-hmm. So when you ask the person, what did you see? The left hemisphere is talking, and it only saw the word ring. And so the person says, I saw the word ring. If you ask them, what kind of ring? Was it a key ring, a wedding ring, a doorbell ring? The person will go, I, I, I don't know. Just ring is all I saw. Now, if you blindfold them, give them a little box, with lots of little stuff in it, a key, a ring, a pencil, a spoon, all sorts of little stuff you can put in a box. You ask them, blindfolded, please use your left hand to pick up the object that corresponds to the word you just read. The left hand will go through and it will sort, it pick things up, put them down until it finds a key. Even if it happens to pick up a ring, it'll fill it and put it back down and keep searching until it finds a key. So now the other side of the brain that is not verbal, it saw its own word And it can't talk, but it can pick things up and it can feel things. And now you're asking essentially that entity, what did you see? And it's only picked up key. This suggests you have two conscious beings. That's right. I should mention that the right hemisphere controls the left hand. Right. And it feels what the left hand is feeling. And the left hemisphere controls the right hand. And And the tongue and the speaking. Left hemisphere controls speech. Yeah. That's right. So that's why the left hand is telling you what the right hemisphere knows about, and the right hand is telling you what the left hemisphere knows about. And this is the work that Sperry did, and so it doesn't just suggest, it seems to scream that there are two conscious beings, one of which is seeing the left visual field, one is seeing the right visual field, one is controlling the left hand, one is controlling the right hand, only one of them gets to speak. That's right. The contents of their conscious experiences can be utterly different. One is having the experience of key, the other is having the experience of ring. And you can actually ask questions to these hemispheres to find out about their personalities. And it turns out they have different personalities. And they'd have to write their answer, I guess. The left hemisphere can talk. Right. So if you ask a person, you can find out about the personality of the left hemisphere. You can ask the right hemisphere and have the left hand spell out with Scrabble pieces or to write with a pencil. So hopefully it's a lefty because then they can write with a pencil. But if they're a right-handed person, they're going to have to spell with Scrabble letters. That's interesting. So Sperry literally interviewed the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere separately and came up with different personality types. Well, it was later work, I think, besides Sperry. But what people found, the personalities are very, very different. The left hemisphere is more upbeat. The right hemisphere is not quite as happy. One case, when they asked a person what they wanted to be when they graduated from college, the left hemisphere said this guy wanted to be a draftsman, and the right hemisphere spelled out automobile racer. Very, very different personalities. And V.S. Ramachandran, a professor at UC San Diego, found one split-brain patient in which the left hemisphere believes in God and the right hemisphere is an atheist. Because the secret society of brain scientists was not cool enough, we now need to talk about alien hand syndrome. (laughs) Right. 
So in some of the split brain patients, not most, but some, you get someone who's got a naughty left hand. I'll give you a concrete example. The person is getting dressed. The right hand is trying to pick out a conservative dress that's appropriate for work. And the left hand pulls out some slinky red thing that's good for Friday night or Saturday night, but it's not good for work. And the left hand refuses to let go of it and won't help put on the correct dress for work. This isn't a split brain patient. This isn't a split brain patient. And so there's a fight. As the one hand is trying to button up the conservative dress, the left hand is unbuttoning it. <laughs> Another case where you know the person's trying to make an omelet and the left hand just throws in a whole egg, shell and all, and throws in a salt shaker trying to ruin the omelet. So apparently the left hemisphere likes omelets and the right hemisphere does not like that omelet. It's just trying to wreck it so they'll have some cereal or something instead. That, that's right. So this kind of suggests that there are multiple consciousnesses that are unifying in the whole sense of self that we end up with. And is this also related to the term society of mind in any way? It is. Marvin Minsky had a book about the society of mind, and he was a physicalist, so he wasn't taking the point of view that I am, that consciousness is fundamental and we can have conscious agents combine to create new conscious agents. But he was saying that there were these computational processes, physical processes in the brain that could create minds and that you could have multiple minds that were being created by these computational processes. So his society of mind view is very, very different from mine. But nonetheless, your math has suggested that consciousnesses can combine and become entirely new emergent consciousnesses. Is that something that's come out of the mathematical work that you're doing, or is that more of a philosophical supposition? That's mathematics, and it was a surprise to me. So I have this abstract notion of a conscious agent, but then I've written down a completely precise formal structure, and I've published it. Could you tell us what the journal is for those whose math goes far beyond my own? Right. It's the Frontiers of Psychology Journal, and it's called Objects of Consciousness. And it's by me, Donald Hoffman, and also Chetan Prakash is co-author on it. He's mm -hmm. a mathematician that I work with. And we have an absolutely precise definition of a conscious agent. And one of the interesting implications of that definition I discovered as I was playing with it is that when I took two conscious agents and had them interact and looked at the system of two conscious agents, that system actually satisfied the definition of being a single conscious agent. And so this continues ad infinitum. You can keep taking pairs of agents and combining them. And so this suggests a really interesting structure. There are the simplest agents that have just two perceptions, like red and green, and two actions. I call them one-bit agents. They're the simplest agents possible, and they have the most simplest free will decisions to make. You take two of these one-bit agents, have them interact, you get a two-bit agent. Now you take two of the two-bit agents and have them interact, you get a four-bit agent. And you can keep doing this until you actually get agents that have infinite number of bits. So now you have infinite consciousnesses that come out of this mathematics, and we have complete mathematical control, understanding these combinations and the dynamics so we can study it. But here we're dealing with infinite consciousnesses. We're now treading in the realm of theology and religion, but treading in a new way. You might think of God as being an infinite conscious agent. But I can now precisely define what I mean by an infinite conscious agent, and I can prove theorems. And these are no longer hand waves or canons of beliefs. These are theorems and proofs that follow from the mathematics. And working downward, like if I work downward from myself, going down in the direction of the one-bit and two-bit agents, that might notionally be split the hemisphere. Now you've got two simpler entities and split, split, split. You might have consciousness all the way down. Going up, staying in consensus reality, might it be something like the culture of a company? 
or the shared spirit of a team or a nation? Might those be actual consciousnesses? Absolutely. This theory of conscious agents seems to imply that that's going to happen, that when you get a company and people working closely together or a nation, you're going to get new conscious entities that are arising. Now, we may not experience that because we're just part of the constituents. We're not the new entity that arises. And so we won't be able perhaps to experience that higher entity. We might not be able to detect it either. Well, that's going to be a question I look at my mathematics. Is there any way for us as the lower level agents to understand anything about the agents above us? I'm very interested in that question. I can't wait to see if the mathematics will give us some way of looking above. And then you start treading toward theology, I guess, if you say all human consciousnesses sum up to a super agent that's way, way up there, that could be when you start getting into the direction of God, etc. That's right. Exactly right. One last thing. Is there a connection between your emerging view of conscious agents and a field that's called panpsychism? I mean, there are various versions of panpsychism, so I don't want to mischaracterize, but here's a standard one. Every physical object, say an electron, has not only physical properties like position and momentum and spin, it also has a unit of consciousness. It actually has a conscious experience and also some notion of agency. So it's more of a dualist point of view. There really is a physical world. There really are particles with real physical properties, but they also have these conscious experiences. So it's very, very different from my point of view, because I'm saying that the physical world doesn't exist apart from my perceptions. And so panpsychism, would it say that this chair has some kind of a mental or conscious life? Is it all particles are conscious, or is it all things that look like solitary unitary objects to us humans? Like, is a teddy bear got a consciousness? It almost sounds animist. Where do they draw the lines between consciousnesses? And this is where panpsychists themselves will debate which kinds of objects are legitimate to say these have conscious experiences? Is a mere aggregate of sand enough to have conscious experience? And they will debate that. But in most cases, they'll say that, for example, an electron has consciousness, a proton has consciousness, and a hydrogen atom, which is an electron plus a proton together, that also has consciousness. An independent consciousness of the subparticles. Independent of those. And so you've got what they call the combination problem. And this is the big open technical problem for panpsychism. How do you take the conscious agents of the electron and of the proton to create a new subject for the hydrogen atom? And how do you take the individual experiences of the electron and proton and map them into the experiences of the hydrogen atom? So panpsychism is a philosophical idea. So far, it has not been cashed out into a mathematically precise scientific theory. Now, you've got two books that are coming up. I have read the current draft of one of them, which is coming out, is it early 2019? 2019. And that is the one that really talks primarily about fitness before truth, the user interface, most of what we've talked about. And the second book, which will be sometime in the indeterminate future, is going to go into the conscious agent stuff that we're talking about now, which remains a work in process for you. What will be the title of the first book? Right now, the working title is The Case Against Reality. Then the subtitle is Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be published by Norton in the United States and Penguin in the UK. And probably several months from now, January-ish or something like that. That's right. And so people can look for that. And then is there anywhere else where people can find you and your work online? If you just Google Donald Hoffman, H-O-F-F-M-A-N, my homepage is one of the first that comes up. And the key place on my homepage is a link called the Vita. In my Vita, I have links to all of my papers. 
and they're for free. So you can look at all my papers. I've got podcasts and videos, and there's links to them, and most of them are free. I've got a talk with the Dalai Lama and talks with all sorts of interesting people. Got it. Well, all the way from disabusing me of the notion of a flat earth, um, (laughs) this has been quite a wild tour of one lens through which one can look at reality. I thank you very, very kindly. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Rob. So, I bet you weren't expecting that, huh? Your logic and intuitions may be rebelling against Don's worldview right about now, but as I said at the start of the episode, wrestling with his arguments is a great exercise, both because the actual truth has to be at least as weird as anything he's come up with, and he might actually be right. Don now has the biggest research budget he's ever had, and he's assembled a really high-octane team to help him tackle this stuff over the next few years. So needless to say, stay tuned. After a recorded conversation, Don and I hung out in the courtyard outside his office for a bit, talking about several related ideas. And I hit him with a concept I've been gnawing on for about 20 years, since I first became aware of certain claims of string theory. To my astonishment and delight, Don didn't consider my aging pet theory to be laughable or something to be dismissed out of hand. The heart of it ties string theory to neuroscience in a way that I assumed had been explored already, at least conceptually. But Don, at least, isn't personally aware of anyone who's looked into this vector, which kind of surprised us both. Because if anyone had worked on this stuff, Don would almost certainly be aware of it. I fleshed it out for him pretty extensively in our conversation, and although Don strikes me as being an extremely nice person, I don't think he was just being nice when he said it was novel and interesting. So, patrons, if you're interested in a take on reality that's approximately as weird as Don's own take on reality, head on over to patreon.com slash robreed, R-O-B-R-E-I-D. Have a listen to the bonus content from this week's episode, and please tell me what you think about it. Patreon has a simple discussion space that you should be able to access and post on quite easily, and I'll absolutely read and respond to everything that you post. Of course, my scenario is nowhere near as well-developed as Don's, and it's certainly nowhere near as mathematical or scientific. But what it shares with his thinking is that it's quite explicable through analogies that I think anybody will find accessible. And I, of course, use those analogies in my Patreon post. It's also hard to dismiss out of hand. And if string theory is correct about the nature of reality, the odds may actually favor some aspects of my scenario being true. And don't worry, you don't need a mastery of string theory to understand it. You just have to be aware of one aspect of it, possibly the single easiest aspect of string theory to understand, and I'll do my best to explain it to you. Now, I hope non-patrons will at least consider joining us over at Patreon as well and becoming patrons. If you sign up at $5 a month or more, you'll find hours of content that you haven't yet heard, illuminating every episode going clear back to the beginning of February. Plus, of course, you'll hear my crazy pseudo-theory. If Patreon isn't your thing, or even if it is, I hope you'll consider spreading the word about the podcast, as that's my other vector to survival. As mentioned before, there are multiple tweets about this episode to choose from, as well as a Facebook post. And of course, there's always the direct and very tactile approach of body tackling anyone you know who you're sure will love this show, and insisting they get with the program and download it. And finally, if you happen to be on an iPhone right now and happen to be using Apple's Podcasts app with a little purple icon, you can just rate the podcast, which takes no time at all, 
Or if you feel like it, write a review, which I understand Apple likes even more than just a rating. Whichever way you go, hit send, and you're done. And we're done. Thank you for listening. So, Ars Technica listeners, here we conclude the third and final installment of my interview with Don Hoffman. I do hope you enjoyed it. And if you do enjoy my work, I hope you'll consider visiting my site at after-on.com, or just type the words after on into your favorite podcast player and scroll through the episodes. You'll find tons of stuff about genomics, synthetic biology, conversations about robotics, privacy and government hacking, cryptocurrency, astrophysics, drones, and a whole lot more. Or you could just join me next week here on ours, where we will have another, uh, hopefully fabulous, serialized interview with another deep thinker.